Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olan Eaton. As Charles J. Shields notes in his new biography, and so it goes Kurt Vonnegut, A Life, many dictionaries did not include an entry for Vonnegut during his lifetime. But the Dictionary of Literary Biography did, and it said of him, The contribution of Kurt Vonnegut Jr. to American literature is twofold. Through his artistry and persistence, he has helped to elevate the pulp genre of science fiction to the level of critical recognition. And through his philosophy, he offers a mixture of wistful humanism and cynical existentialism that implies a way of dealing with modern realities completely different than that of most American writers. Today I'm going to be speaking with the New York Times bestselling author Charles J. Shields about his new biography of the iconic 20th century literary figure. The book is called, And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life. Charles, if you wouldn't mind starting us off just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm Charles J. Shields, and I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but I am really a native Chicago, and I spend most of my life there. I live in Virginia now, near the Blue Ridge Mountains, with my wife, Guadalupe. Uh, Guadalupe was a former Chicago elementary school principal, and I spent many years in secondary education as well. I started writing full-time in 1997, and the first audience I started writing for was young people because I knew them the best. So I wrote 20 histories and biographies for stu- uh, students in grades 9 through 12. My first book for adults was Mockingbird, A Portrait of Harper Lee, which came out in 2006. And then again, I wasn't straying too far from what I knew because I had taught To Kill a Mockingbird uh, to young people, and I knew the kinds of questions that they had. And I was intrigued by the fact that there had never been a biography of her before, despite the fact that two-thirds of American public high schools use her book as part of their curricula. Um, it just seemed like a natural to me. It turned out to be pretty rough sledding, though, because um, she didn't cooperate with me on the book, and she told people not to talk to me. Also, she hasn't left much of a paper trail. So what I had to do was pretty much assemble a, an oral history of the book and the novelist and her background by speaking or writing to hundreds of people she had gone to school with or who lived in her town and remembered her as a girl. Um, She did give quite a few interviews in the early 1960s, but she stopped giving interviews in 1964. And the Vonnegut book, which is coming out um, next week on November 8th, is my second uh, adult trade book. It's my second biography for adults, but, but that's a completely different story and a different experience from the one that I had with Harper Lee. Okay, and um, what gave you the idea to pursue a biography of Vonnegut? Well, I went to college in the late 1960s um, during the Vietnam War. Uh, I myself was 1A and in the draft lottery, uh, and a lot of young people my age were carrying around Vonnegut in their back pocket, um, whether it was um, Cat's Cradle or Sirens of Titan. He seemed to speak to the kind of disenchantment that a lot of young people were feeling in the late 1960s. And then when Slaughterhouse-Five came out in 1968, it was a sensation because... um, 
it turned the whole nature of war and heroism on its head. Um, this was a, the story of Billy Pilgrim, who was trying to be a good soldier and was completely bewildered or completely confused, as a lot of citizen soldiers were during World War II and during the Vietnam War. I mean, now we have a professional army of people who volunteer, but before there was a, uh, you know, a volunteer army, uh, people were literally drafted off the street. And not all of them, I would imagine only a fraction of them were well suited for the kind of life that uh, you know, military service entails. And Billy Pilgrim is sort of Joe Everyman. Um, he's trying to march, and he's trying to keep his stuff upper lip, and he's trying not to be afraid. And nevertheless, everything that's happening around him is without explanation, without logic, and he becomes a little unhinged. And although we didn't call it that at the time, in you know the late 60s, it's really a portrait of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Billy Pilgrim's problems with time, you know, leaping ahead to Tralfamador in outer space, and then suddenly realizing he's standing in front of Rotary talking about being an optometrist, and then the next moment having a vision of himself lying in the snow at the Battle of the Bulge. It's all typical of somebody who is having flashbacks, somebody who's having recurring emotional nightmares during the day. And uh, the book really, you know, made Vonnegut's career, uh, became beloved by a lot of young people. So when I turned my attention to what to do next after Harper Lee, uh, I once again used pretty much the same mode of questioning with myself. Who hasn't had a biography written about him or her? Who had a big impact on my generation? Is this a subject that's interesting enough to hold my attention for several years if necessary? And... Um, who will be interested in when I get done because, you know, I'm a, I'm a full-time professional writer and I have to think about saleability. Uh, I know to some people, you know, it may seem crass or we would like to imagine writers as rushing to their computers or, or legal pads when they're inspired and writing wonderful things that spring full-blown from their forehead like Athena. <laughs> but um, I have to tell you that half of my mind is creative and one half is financial. And the creative side says, is this a real grabber? Is this something that's intriguing? Can you stay with it? And the financial aid, the financial side says, and when you get done after three, four, or five years, who will walk into a bookstore and say, yeah, I'll pay $30 for that? So Vonnegut seemed to have all the elements that I was interested in in terms of mystery and um, no biography written about him. And also his place in the canon is still not... You know, for sure, it's it's not for certain. A number of people have asked me, do you think young people will still be reading Vonnegut years from now? And I try to address that. I try to address that in the biography. Is he is he a mid-20th century phenomenon, or is he somebody who belongs in the pantheon of American writers? Uh, uh, and it took me 523 pages to explain that. <laughs> How did you go about approaching Vonnegut for the book? I know he participated to a degree. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I'm i not real sly when it comes to asking people if I can work with them. I, I couldn't come up with any kind of crafty plan. I just wrote him a letter, and I said, I don't understand why there's never been a biography of you. You have 14 books in print. My 22-year-old nephew, uh, you know, has all of your books, except the ones that he's loaned out and never gotten back again. But, you know, you've had an impact on three generations, and yet the jury still seems to be out. I'd like to write your biography. And he sent back a, a large, oh, 
what size would that be? Like 11 by 17 or something piece of drawing paper that artists use in their sketch pads. And he had sketched a drawing of himself, just a little um, portrait. And underneath it said, this is a portrait of me demurring on the offer by the fine biographer, Charles J. Shields to write my biography. Well, it was kind of playful. And my wife and I put it up on the mantle and what she pointed out is that the word demurring is not like absolutely not. It doesn't carry any finality to it. You know, it, it doesn't uh, connote that at all. So on the strength of just that one word, demurring, as if he were saying, no, no, I couldn't possibly have seconds. No, no, thank you. Um, I wrote him again. And I said, listen, uh, let me give me a do over here. I want to tell you a little bit more about myself. And I pointed out that we were both Midwesterners. Kurt was great, raised in Indianapolis. Uh, he worked in public relations for uh, General Electric. My father was in public relations for Ford Motor Company. Both he and my father were World War II veterans. Kurt has a son, Mark, who's just a couple of years older than I am. And I told him about my experiences reading his books uh, and the impact they had on me and, and my friends. So I said, summing up, look, somebody else could probably cobble together a biography about you, you know, by using the internet or, you know, doing a library search or something. But I'm really for the, the guy for the job. I'm a good researcher and I'm a good writer. Well, a couple days passed, maybe five, six days passed, and I got back a postcard and turned it over. And on the back, once again, here's a little drawing of Vonnegut, that little self-portrait. And he's smoking a cigarette, and above his head is one word, okay. And, and that was the beginning of our relationship. I guess he saw something in what I said about myself that made him think that I might be a kindred spirit. And we actually hit it off. Um, I went out to see him in December of 2006. We went out to lunch. I thought it was just going to be a sort of meet and greet type luncheon. And instead, he began, he just launched into his childhood and his parents and his brother. Thank God I wrote something. I had something to write on. I, I, I took out a legal pad and I said, do you mind if I take notes? And he said, no, go ahead. So I started writing quickly and uh, went back to my hotel room, typed up my notes, called him, and we started a phone conversation, you know, phone dialogue back and forth over the next uh, several months. Kurt was a, a lonely person. He was an 84-year-old man who um, was, needed friends. Uh, he was not in a happy marriage. He felt that he had written everything he could possibly write. Uh, and he just wanted companionship. And I guess I indicated to him that I was very interested in his life and what he cared about and talking about his part of the world, Indiana. Uh, and so he would call me at night and we would just shoot the breeze. But that's a little difficult as for a biographer. You know, I, I never knew when the man was going to call me. Uh, and I wasn't really prepared. And sometimes I was scrambling. So I said, look, I, I need to come out and see you again. So I went out to see him in March. And um, we had a good meeting on March 13th, and I came back on March 14th, and we were talking some more. And then, apropos of nothing, I asked him, uh, I said, do you believe in God? And he said, well, I don't know, but who could? And we talked a little bit longer, and then I could tell he was getting tired, and we stood in the foyer for a bit, and he talked about his favorite movie, which was Sunset Boulevard. And I said, I'd be back the next morning, same time, about 10 o'clock. Um, we never shook hands. Kurt was, you know, he was an odd man in that he was guarded, but very frank. 
Um, his children described him as haunted, and I got that impression too. Kurt always seemed to be thinking about something else while you were there. He was listening, but there was some movie un unrolling in his mind. So I left him there on the 14th and came back the following morning and found out from his wife, Jill Kremens, that shortly after I left, Kurt had taken his little dog out for a walk, and they lived in a steep brownstone, or a tall brownstone with uh, steep front steps, a flight of steps that really go up to the second floor. You know, some of those old brownstones, the first floor is on street level, and the steps go up to the second floor where the door is. And he tripped over the dog's leash, and he fell all the way down the steps, and he hit his face on the pavement. Uh, it must have been a tremendous blow because his daughter Lily told me that one side of his face was all discolored. Kurt never regained consciousness. Uh, he lay in the hospital for about a month. Uh, in a coma, and in mid-April, I was in an airport. I saw a newspaper headline that said, Novelist Kurt Vonnegut dead at 84. So, in a sense, he sort of left me holding the bag. I mean, we were working together. He gave me names of people to talk to. He gave me issues that he wanted to talk about, things that needed to be cleared up because he wanted the record set straight. And then he sort of took a powder. I mean, he just disappeared. He, you know, sort of like... Um, uh, Niles Rumford um, in um, Sirens of Titan, uh, you know, that character reappears through a time warp uh, at, a cert at certain intervals. He suddenly just appears, and then he's there, and then he disappears again. And it was almost like that. Kirk went off walking his little dog and never returned. So I had to carry on on my own, and what resulted was five years of interviewing people, collecting 1,500 letters that he thought he'd lost that were still in people's hands, uh, reading all of his interviews, and he gave a lot of interviews because Kurt was an extrovert, and putting it together into a long book with 1,900 footnotes that talks about the arc in the life of a man who started out as a struggling writer, became very famous, and then fell off, not only in terms of popularity, but in terms of inspiration and in his own image of himself. Were there any surprises for you as you were writing it? I know in, in reading it, it was it very much focuses on the private versus the public life. Yes. And in, in public, he was often seen as kind of crotchety and irascible, but in, in the private life as portrayed, he's, he's surprisingly compassionate and at times seems kind of helpless, like his inability to escape Jill and yeah. how he couldn't divorce her. It was, it was not something you would expect. So as, did, right. did you find the character that you went looking for originally or were you surprised as you went along? Um, I, I was surprised. See, I was skeptical. Kurt did something inadvertently the first time I met him that made my antenna go up. Um, I went to his house, and he was like a boy. I, he, he said, as soon as I came in the door, he said, want to see my room? I mean, and that's what, you know, boys do when they're small. They want to go see what stuff I got. So we went up to his third floor uh, study, and he just let me sort of stroll around and admire the things that he had on the walls, you know, his own drawings, and he showed me where he wrote, and he was just very happy to have somebody paying attention to him. And then as we went out the door, it was a very sort of, um, it was a chilly, bleak day in New York, spitting rain, and he said um, in a very, you know, sort of considerate voice, do you have an umbrella, Charles? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, good. I don't want you to catch cold. And there was something in his dulcet tone, and there was something in the mm, overreaching in terms of caring that made me wonder if he was at sometimes on and at sometimes off. I felt like when we were, you know, just 
in his room that he was letting his guard down, and then all of a sudden he flips over into this six foot three Mother Teresa, and I, you know, I wasn't following. Um, so that made me wonder whether there was a distinct private and public self. And I think the key to that is that Kurt was a, a big adolescent. Kurt uh, had issues with his parents that he never resolved. And then he was traumatized when he was in his early 20s during World War II. And I think uh, Kurt had a lot of things that he was still, uh, you know, tearing away at inside of himself as a man in his 80s. Um, and that led to a kind of a split. The public Kurt, you know, confident, counterculture guru, aphorisms, witticisms, you know, that sort of stuff. And then the private Kurt, who was as as disenchanted, you know, as a 19-year-old might be who thinks that the world is a crock and, uh, you know, adults don't know what they're talking about. Um, that's, I think, that maybe the secret to why Kurt related to so many young people is because he captured uh, their their moment of when the scales fall from your eyes as a late adult, you know, a late young adult, and you realize, boy, you know, a lot of things aren't what I thought they would be. Not only is there not a Santa Claus, um, we also may not have a good government, and we may be involved in a war that's not just. And, uh, you know, you don't always meet your prince when you marry someone. Uh, you sometimes meet your arch enemy. So, you know, all of these things that occur to you when you begin to launch into adulthood, Vonnegut addressed. Can you describe his childhood a little bit? If that That's what he first mentioned to you when you met at the restaurant. What did he say? Well, um, it's significant when somebody, whenever somebody talks about it first with you, is very important. Um, that's called presenting. And that's how they want you to know them. If you listen carefully to people and they bring up the fact, oh, for example, I was with an academic a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned three times in several minutes he was chair of his department. That's very important to him, apparently. He, he wants me to know that. He, he that That's his validation. You may talk to somebody who's mowing your yard, and he somehow manages to mention that was in, when he was in the Marines, well, all right, that's an important experience for him. When I first met Kurt, he went right to his family, right to his parents, and his resentment of his brother. Kurt was raised in an upper-middle-class family in Indianapolis in the 20s and the 30s. His father was an architect. Not a particularly gifted architect. Kurt, in his books, talks about you know his father being very brilliant and creative. Actually, it was Kurt's grandfather, Bernard Vonnegut, uh, who was uh, very gifted. Uh, Kurt's dad, also named Kurt Vonnegut Sr., was not as gifted. He mainly drew, created a lot of drugstore buildings, Illinois or Indiana Bell Telephone, some homes. But, you know, by and large, he, he made a good buck turning out what was expected of him. He didn't take too many creative risks. His mother, Kurt's mother, was uh, neurotic. Um, she started off very, very wealthy. Her family lost their wealth during Prohibition because they had been in the beer business. And she felt that she had had a tremendous fall from grace, that, you know, she was in the 1908 coming out season in London, and here she was living in Indianapolis, and during the Depression, her husband was having trouble getting commissions. Uh, and she was very, she was an aggrieved person. She was a person who felt 
uh, that she had been done to. And her anger and her resentment filled that house with a kind of a crackling energy of negativity that Kurt picked up on. Uh, he had an elder brother, Bernard, who was about, I think, off the top of my head, seven, eight years older, who was was a brilliant. Uh, but they were like bookends in that Kurt was 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 very gifted when it came to writing. His brother, Bernard, was an atmospheric scientist and a physicist, and for him... Nothing intuitive mattered. Um, art was decorative. Uh, you know, books were fine, but only in terms of the information that they could give you. And he really was the antithesis of his younger brother. And the two of them sparred throughout most of their lives. And, and Kurt very much resented his elder brother for convincing their parents that Kurt had to go into science at Cornell when Kurt wanted to go become a journalist. So Kurt went into went to Cornell, majored in science, flunked out, joined up as a private uh, in the Army uh, because he had been kicked out of ROTC, got captured at the Battle of the Bulge, was in Dresden when it was bombed, and he attributed all this to his brother's interference. Had his brother not stepped in when he was about to go to college, none of this would have happened. And that's exactly what he told me. None of this would have happened. So his brother was his, his Moriarty, his arch enemy. Uh, although they, you know, they, they got, they were cordial to each other. And he had an elder sister named Alice who was kind of, frankly, a little flaky. Um, she floated around drawing on things and never really got very serious. So Kurt came from this oddball family and, um, married right after World War II and, um, you know, had to earn money for his family. So he, when he was offered a job at public, at, uh, uh, General Electric, because his brother Bernard had allowed, had somehow put in a word for him. Bernard was working at General Electric. Kurt took the job and went into PR, and he had a white collar job. He was doing pretty well at it. He was uh, talented. Kurt was a good publicizer, and he knew how to get the public's attention. He wasn't there for more than a few weeks when he got General Electric uh, uh, an article in Life magazine, which was really really good. Uh, but he didn't like the corporate life. He wanted to be a full time writer. He stepped off, began writing full-time, published one novel, a player piano, and then disappeared from sight. Kurt, for the rest of the 1950s, from about 53 all the way up through the 1960s to about 1968, was a little-known freelancer who wrote magazine stories, paperback books for a fee, advertising copy, and at one point even sold foreign cars, um, anything to stay afloat. He was in his late 40s when he finally made it. And, it, you know, he was grateful for that, but he couldn't help but feel a little bit, uh, you know, bemused by the fact that he had been taken up by people his children's age and that nobody really paid attention until he was coming up on 50. I know that his his family life was, was quite complicated during that point. Can you describe that a little bit with his nephews and Alice's death and her husband? Right. Well, Kurt was married to his childhood sweetheart, Jane Marie Cox, whom he knew since kindergarten in Indianapolis. Uh, she graduated from Swarthmore. He never graduated from Cornell. He courted her all during the war and after the war. They married. They moved to Cape Cod because it was a fulfillment of a dream of his that he live out his mother's life. His mother... Uh, was a uh, tried to publish, tried to write, but never got anything published. But her dream was to live on Cape Cod and write for women's magazines and, and have sort of this 
Edith Wharton type life with her children running through the waves while she you know, received money for writing stories didn't happen. As a matter of fact, Kurt's mother killed her. So. So, Charles, I'd like to backtrack a little bit. Earlier, we briefly touched upon Vonnegut's time as a soldier in World War II, um, just in passing and the mentioning of the post-traumatic stress syndrome that he experienced afterwards. And this obviously played a huge part in what he wrote later on. Can you talk a bit more about that? Well, um, Kurt was a citizen soldier. Uh, you know, in World War II, the, um, the draft was uh, in operation, and people were taken from all walks of life. And so, consequently, here you have this um, upper-middle-class kid from Indianapolis um, who's never heard a shot fired in anger, and he ends up being a private in the infantry, captured by the Germans, marched for days to a railroad siding, where he's loaded onto a boxcar, you know, with no food, and then the boxcar rolls deeper into Germany for several days, still with no food, and then they unload them all, and instead of leading them into the camp, they tell them to lie down in the snow and wait for morning. And during the night, some of them froze to death. In fact, Vonnegut got a purple heart for frostbite, um, so it, you know, they were they were staggering. They were exhausted. They were uh, disoriented when they entered the prisoner of war camp. And then, uh, you know, the reason Vonnegut became a believer in accidents was that so much of, his, of it, it, so many things in his life were, were pure happenstance. You know, as it is with all of us, but many critical things happened to him out of sheer luck or you know misfortune, I guess you'd say. Okay, so he makes it into the prisoner of war camp. And then um, uh, all the GIs are told to line up. Uh, a German comes down the line looking for healthy specimens, and he's pointing at them going, you, you, you. And he pointed to Vonnegut and said, you. Uh, so Vonnegut stepped out of line, and it turned out that he was one of 150 men chosen to go to Dresden on a work detail because the uh, camp was too crowded. And he thought he was in like Flynn, you know, because uh, he doesn't have to stay in this lousy camp caging cigarettes. He gets to go to Dresden, and the rumor is they're going to be working in a factory, and a city's got to be better than a camp, you know, out in the middle of a uh, pine forest. So he gets transported to Dresden, and it is absolutely beautiful. Now, it was nicknamed Florence on the Elbe. It was one of the European cultural capitals. Uh, it was untouched by the war, and as he and his fellow prisoners walked down the street, they just marveled at the contrast between being, you know, uh, hunkered down in the woods uh, defending their lives and now walking down the main street of a beautiful European city. And the Germans, the Dresdeners, were so accustomed to seeing prisoners that they didn't even glance at them. And, you know, nobody booed or tossed anything at them or anything. They were just more soldiers. Uh, so they were marched into a, a slaughterhouse uh, compound. It was a great big factory used to slaughter animals and to cure uh, meat. Uh, and one of the barns had been converted into a barracks with a pot-bellied stove and lots of jerry-built uh, bunks, and that's where they were to stay. Um, the food ran out rather quickly. I mean, they had been promised better rations on this work detail, but as it turned out, they got mainly black bread, thin soup, maybe a piece of cheese, and although Red Cross pass, the par, uh, packages arrived initially at the beginning, uh, they just stopped arriving. They were supposed to get a box of Red Cross stuff every week, you know, M&Ms and biscuits and things, and they never got them. So they began to starve, and they became fascinated with food. Uh, you know, they would talk about it, they would dream about it, they'd lie in bed at night uh, and talk to each other about what Thanksgiving was like at their house. And um, they, you know, they were at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, just surviving day in and day out. 
And then one night they were rousted out of their beds uh, by the guards, and they were hustled into a slaughterhouse basement 60 feet below ground where they stayed for eight hours while Dresden was absolutely pulverized by pattern bombing, first the RAF and then the 8th American Air Force. And when they came up the next morning, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 Germans were dead. Uh, the city was completely unrecognizable, largely on fire. And it was as if, you know, the way I said it in the book was, it was as if he had arrived at Troy and then somehow slept through the sacking of Troy. And this was the result. You know, he was seeing the outcome. And that was something that really stymied him all through the writing of Slaughterhouse-Five was he was missing the second act of this drama. He was there for Act One at the beginning. He was there for Act Three when the city was destroyed. They were starving. They had to pull bodies out of basements. But he missed, you know, the, the Act Two, the complication, so to speak, you know, the, the bombing of the city. So for years he wrestled with that and realized that his problem was time. He needed to be able to bend and manipulate time so that he could ricochet back and forth and be where his character, Billy Pilgrim, needed to be and not be constrained by chronological time. Um, that was one aspect of Slaughterhouse-Five. The other aspect of Slaughterhouse-Five was Vonnegut's own unhinged psyche because for a young, sensitive man uh, to be put on a detail where he had to wade down into flooded basements and retrieve the bodies of suffocated children and women, teenagers, um, you know, the, the effect on him was, was more than deleterious. It was permanent. It was damaging. Uh, it ruptured something in him. And Slaughterhouse-Five tried to address what it felt like being, uh, having flashbacks, having waking nightmares. Uh, you know, Billy Pilgrim is here, there, in the snow at Dresden, er, at the Bulge, and then suddenly back in his office as an optometrist. Uh, and that's what, you know, some men and women experience as a result of being, uh, having been exposed to terrible, terrible violence and loss of life. Right. This is going to be a bit jarring, but I think it comes back in that sense of timing in Vonnegut's life. And one of the elements I really enjoyed in the book and found most fascinating were the stories about Vonnegut's family life, the relationships he had with his mother and his wives and his children, because it was quite complicated, really. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, Kurt, um, Kurt had unsatisfactory relationships with a number of important people in his life. Um, Kurt was a good friend and a good buddy and a good fellow soldier, you know, and, and a good GI. But he wasn't a very good husband. He wasn't a very good parent. And uh, he said that he was not a very good son, but I think his parents were satisfied with him. I think they felt that he was full of high jinks and good spirits, and he was very, very bright. But um, he felt that he had kind of a poisonous relationship with his parents because they didn't appreciate him. That was Kurt's big beef in life, that he was not appreciated. Um, whenever it came to intimacy, uh, he, he felt like he was not getting his just desserts. So you see, he could be a good friend and he could be a good pal, but in a relationship where love was expected or guidance was expected from him, him as a parent uh, or filial piety as a son later in life, Vonnegut just bridled at that. He, he was not good at um, feeling intimacy or, or reciprocating it. Um, and so as a result, he had a, a rocky relationship with the people you would think would be closest to him in his life. 
and yet he was an extrovert. He had plenty of friends. I mean, if you talk to his students uh, at the University of Iowa workshop when he was there in '65, oh, he was great. Oh, he was encouraging, and they really enjoyed going to see him. And he could be depended upon for a good laugh or to show up at a good party at somebody's house. But you know, that that was pretty much how far you could go with Kurt. It was he had difficulty engaging. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, like, when his his sister and her husband they they died in really close space yes. of each other, and and he inherited children from them and had his own children as well. He had was quite a large family, which was somewhat unexpected to me. I didn't really envision him as a big father yeah. figure, but he kind of did loom large in those children's lives. Yeah, um, talking about accidents and happenstance, Kurt felt that his life was galloping toward. Um, failure and he could barely, you know, rein in this horse he was on. Um, after he got out of World War II, um, he married his uh, high school sweetheart, Jane Marie Cox from Indianapolis, and so that was a success, uh, although he suspected that she actually wanted to marry someone else, someone that she had met during college, but he let, tried to let that slide. Um, he got a good white-collar job at General Electric, and then he threw it all over. Uh, after a few years, uh, not many years, maybe three, to write full-time. Uh, but, you know, he didn't really do the calculus of, you know, what he was sacrificing to write. Um, and, and Jane never dissuaded him from it either. And so very quickly, Kurt found himself uh, a Ham and Egger kind of freelancer in terms of, you know, selling the odd article and sometimes being flush with cash and sometimes having none. And meanwhile, little babies are coming along. Uh, first Mark, and then Edie, and then Nanny. By the mid-1950s, he had three small children. He was very close to broke. Uh, he was living in a large uh, ramshackle house in Cape Cod that always needed repair. And really, just you know, making it hand to mouth. And then in 1958, at 36 hours apart, his brother-in-law was killed in a freak train accident in which a train shot over a bridge and landed in a river, and he was instantly drowned. And then 36 after that, hours after that, uh, his wife, Kurt's sister, Alice, died of cancer. So they came into four boys all of a sudden, ages 2 to 15. And they, you know this mix, this was integrated right into their family of three. So now they have seven children all between the ages of preschool and mid-high school, and it was pandemonium. I mean, Jane tried to be everybody's mother and everybody's confidant and also have time for her, her uh, rather eccentric husband, and all Kurt wanted was to be left alone to write. Uh, he felt that he was doing a great thing by taking in his brother-in-law's and sister's children, which he was. I mean, he was very generous. But, you know, it, once again, Kurt did not exercise good judgment when it came to actions and consequences. Just like he threw over his job at General Electric to write full-time, he was first on the scene to take these four boys and welcome them into a situation that was, you know, financially very dicey, that was very volatile because he was easily upset, uh, and the kids didn't get much parenting. As a result, it was pretty much, as he put it later to his brother, uh, Bernard, it was pretty much a kid-centered household, um, and he, you know, he didn't function well with that, uh, and when Kurt came into the kitchen, the kids never knew whether he was going to be friendly, 
hey, how's it going, you guys? Or whether he was going to be close to being in a rage, as in, why don't you shut the hell up? And, um, you know, what's wrong with you kids? And I can't think. So, you know, it was, I think Nanny said that being around her father was like having a force of nature nearby, and you had to reckon with it all the time. Yes. There was also some inconstancy because he did wind up um, divorcing Jane and remarrying, correct? Yeah, he did. Uh, Jane was there for the for the hard times. You know, Jane was there all through the time when Kurt was just making it as a freelancer and taking odd jobs as an advertising writer. And uh, at one point he sold foreign cars. So she was there for sort of the bad times, you know, and was always cheery, always believing, writing to friends saying, I, I just know Kurt's on the cusp of making it. And, uh, so then when he does make it, he shakes the dust of Cape Cod from his heels and goes to New York to live the literary life, feeling like he's paid his dues, uh, he's been long-suffering, and now he's going to cash in on his sudden fame. So Slaughterhouse-Five comes out in 68. 1969, the marriage is uh, very unhappy. 1970, he goes to New York and then comes back and then goes to New York and can't make up his mind whether he wants to stay with his family or with his girlfriend. And finally just decamps and goes to New York to live with the girlfriend, uh, who became his second wife, Jill Kremens. So, you know, Jane couldn't help but feel uh, the bitter irony of having been there when he was not famous. Uh, and then when he does become famous, he says, in essence, um, thanks for thanks for everything, kid. Here's a kiss on the forehead. Um, I got to go. <laughs> Let's talk about a bit about Jane, because they kind of had a love-hate thing going on, and it seemed like they just couldn't quite kick each other. Well, their, their lives were so entwined, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had known each other since kindergarten. <sighs> Um, they knew, they had common friends in Indianapolis. Uh, their mothers belonged to the same she-she clubs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then they have all these children. Um, and so as a result, when he tries to pull up, you know, when he tries to pull out of the whole marriage, it's not easy to extricate yourself from something like that. Mm-hmm. His life, you couldn't tell where his life stopped and her life began. It was so much overlap. So between 1970 and, and when he married Jill, finally, almost 10 years later, they continued to write letters, sometimes signing them love. You know, Kurt loved Jane. Jane writing and saying, I don't know why, but I still love you. Um, talking about the kids, calling each other about the kids. They just were not easily disentangled from each other. And finally, Jane met someone else, and um, they did get a, a divorce, which neither of them seemed to really want, but they couldn't carry on the way they were. It wasn't fair to other people. No one really understood their status as a couple. And quite quickly after the divorce came through, Kurt married Jill Kremens. And, and not long after that, Jill uh, Jane died of cancer. Mm-hmm. And what about the marriage to Jill? Because it was kind of... The opposite experience, correct? That yes, it was. A similar uh, difficulty in extracting himself from it, but... Yeah, yeah, well, Jane couldn't, you know, Jane couldn't say no, and Jill had no problem saying mm-hmm. no, um, and also she had no problem saying, starting sentences with, I want. 
Uh, and Kurt was not used to that, having been indulged for so many years by his wife and having his children always, you know, making room for dad. Um, now he was in a very demanding relationship with a tough woman who was a self-made photojournalist in New York, um, enchantingly beautiful, um, very verbal, very outspoken, and she had a real genius, you know, for finding the chinks in Kurt's armor. Um, a few times when things really got bad between them, she would threaten suicide. And that was her trump card because, you know, Kurt's mother had committed suicide. And just the whole thought of that kind of loss or being responsible for it, because like, uh, you know, a lot of young people uh, whose parents uh, take their own lives, Kurt felt that he was in some way responsible. So when Jill would say, I'm going to commit suicide, or I'm going to kill myself, um, Kurt just, you know, would back away almost in horror. Uh, so it was a very, very difficult relationship between him and Jill. She was a good thing for him in that people made a lot of demands on Kurt. You know, he, he had such an enormous following, and people felt that they knew him through his books. So consequently, everybody wanted a piece of Kurt or felt like they knew him. And Jill was Cerebus at the door. I mean, literally, people, old friends and things would come to the door and, uh, is Kurt here? Yes, but he's not available. And close the door. Um, so it gave him the space that he needed. But she could also be quite punitive in that regard because Kurt loved other people and was an extrovert. And when Jill wanted to tighten the screws on him, she isolated him, uh, made him a sort of a, you know, a captive in his own home. Uh, and then once when that didn't work out, threw him out and changed the lock so he couldn't get back into his own home. Um, she was very tough. Let's do talk a bit about Kurt's mother, because we haven't hit upon that yet, and that was really the relationship that kind of drove him to write. Yes. Well, um, Kurt grew up in a house with books. I, I mean, uh, he one of the first things he talked to me about was this wonderful collection of books that uh, his parents had inherited from, I think, his maternal no, his paternal grandmother, who had, had bought, you know, sort of a Harvard foot-long or three-foot shelf of classics or something. And so Kurt read uh, all kinds of, you know, things by Robert Louis Stevenson and Greek uh, tragedies and uh, really became immersed in, in books. And, and there were a lot of magazines in the house. You know, in the 20s and 30s, magazines were just replete with uh, all kinds of fiction by very, very good writers. So Kurt grew up in a, a very literate household. And then his mother, when times got financially hard for the family in the 30s, hit upon the idea that she could write articles for women's magazines, you know, Ladies Home Journal and Saturday Evening Post, things like that. So she started writing, but she didn't have the common touch. Um, she, you know, I think I said earlier she wanted to be sort of Edith Wharton, uh, and she talked about a world that, the readers of coffee table type magazines really couldn't appreciate and as a result she never sold anything and she took YMCA classes on fiction writing and you know and she read books on cellular fiction but she never did but Kurt was really intrigued by this whole idea of writing and, and mailing it off and getting a response and her talk about agents and reprints and all that um and uh, that was his first exposure to the whole idea of making a living by the pen. When, after she died uh, and she killed herself, um, she you know, became increasingly neurotic. I think she was on some very, very strong 
uh, antipsychotics uh, in the 1930s, and um, I don't think pharmacology was as sophisticated then as it is now, and consequently she sort of haunted their lives by staying up at night and moving around, you know, uh, not wanting to be photographed, really became reclusive and odd. Um, so when Kurt became a writer, he wanted to vicariously complete his mother's dream of writing. And she had also wanted to live on Cape Cod. I mean, she had visions of herself sitting in a, a deck chair, you know, with the waves breaking near her and, and writing things that everybody would want to read. And so Kurt got a house by the sea, and he wrote things that he thought everybody would want to read. Uh, but, um, you know, as Heraclitus said, the gods in their wisdom have made the path to excellence high and hard to climb. And it took 20 years before Kurt reached a point at which he was a respected author. So I know there's a lot of debate about whether or not Vonnegut's work is going to hold up over time, whether it's tethered to the 20th century or if it's going to survive into the 21st. How do you view his literary legacy? Well, I think um, Kurt's audience, Kurt tends to be caught at a time in people's lives when they are 18, 19, 20, and the scales have fallen from their eyes. Um, Maybe they're feeling sort of an existential despair for the first time. They realize that... um, uh, you know, the world is not exactly what they thought it was. Uh, people who seem wise may not be wise. And so they're, they're, they have a sense of feeling caught out, you know, but, but also kind of wry and uh, not wanting to be wanting, having the wool pulled over their eyes. Well, they read Vonnegut and he tells them, in essence, you're right. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's a lot of big questions that haven't been answered yet. Why are we here? Is there a God? Uh, how much of life is is deliberate, how much of it is accidental? And, you know, these are big questions to people who are just coming upon adulthood. So I think as long as there are young people with unanswered questions, as long as there are seekers, as long as there are people who feel like uh, they know that there's a man behind the curtain and they want to find out who it is, uh, Kurt Vonnegut will be read. And, uh, you know, he deserves respect as an author for taking tremendous creative risks. He powers his books on ideas, not on plot, not really even on character, but on sheer ideas. And that's a high wire act, you know. I mean, to make you turn the page because you're really interested in what's going on here. And the characters are just sort of almost like bit players. He one time claimed that he had no villains in his book, his novels. I don't know whether I agree with that, but that gives you an idea of what he was striving for in terms of originality. So I think Kurt will be continued to be read the way we still read, you know, in college English classes, Tristram Shandy, um, who, you know, took uh, the, the novel that took so many risks with um, chron- chronology and, and uh, storytelling in the, um, in the 18th century. All right, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I did want to end the interview with a quick peek into the future. Any idea what subject you'd like to write about next? Well, I'd like to stretch a little bit. I've I've done two biographies in a row now of post-World War II authors, and I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what could I do that would be a a real challenge, something I haven't done yet. Um, I can't say that 
you know, um, anything has occurred to me that's really seized me. I, I seem to be in sort of a, a fallow mode right now where I'm just thinking. Uh, and, and because the Vonnegut book is, is coming out, uh, I know that I'm going to be occupied with a lot of um, uh, work on the, um, you know, the interviewing side and the speaking to audience side. So I think it's really just a time to let myself subconscious work. Right. You are working a lot with Biographers International as well. Would you like to talk about that organization? Well, Biographers International uh, is um, the first organization of its kind in the United States. About three years ago, I, I went to a meeting in, in New York uh, of people who might be interested in starting a, an organization for biographers. I thought, great idea. Uh, I was surprised that there were probably 50 to 70 people in the room, most of them published biographers, who also thought it was a great idea. Uh, we elected an interim president, Debbie Applegate, who won the Pulitzer Prize, and um, just began to make it up, you know, like the way Harrison Ford does in the Indiana Jones movies. He says, I'm just making it up. We made up officers. We made up a constitution. Uh, we held our first election sometime after that. And now we find that we have close to 500 members. We're starting on our third uh, national conference, which will be in Los Angeles in May 2012. And, you know, we've, one thing we've discovered as biographers being in this organization is that all of us, we're working in isolation. Uh, you see, we don't really fit in with fiction writers. Uh, and, and if we were to go to a, a writing workshop, there's really not that many people who are like us. Biography is a relatively constrained and specialized field. Uh, and, and so, you know, through this organization, we've met a lot of like-minded people, made f- a lot of friends, uh, and, and it's, you know, the collegiality is terrific. So it, it's a good thing to belong to. Great. Thank you so much for talking to us about your book, And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life. It was really lovely speaking with you. Thank you. This is great. You've been listening to an interview with Charles J. Shields, the author of the new biography, And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, Life. This is New Books in Biography, and I'm Olaine Eaton. Thanks for listening.